0: Again, good morning. Uh, great to be with you all, and it's just uh, always uh, an honor to be able to open up God's Word together. Uh, if you have uh, your Bible with you today, let me invite you to turn with me one last time to the book of 1 Peter. One last time. Uh, today, we're putting a bow, uh, sort of wrapping this up. Uh, we've been studying. Uh, this letter of of 1 Peter uh, together for for 20 weeks um, over the course of the fall and the spring. Uh, It's been quite a journey uh, that I hope has been a blessing to you. Um, I was telling um, some of the volunteers in the back today, I was thinking last night, um, anytime I I wrap up a sermon series, especially if I go through a book in particular, um, it's actually strange. Maybe this would be weird to you, but there's almost a sense, like last night I was almost like grieving um, like, oh, I've spent so much time and energy um, with Peter. I feel like, like he's a friend. Uh, uh, I, I was telling them that, you know, just because of how I approach God's word, you know, going verse by verse, and it's been 20 weeks, and the amount of time um, I typically spend on a sermon each week, I was telling them that between the fall and the spring, um, I've re- roughly spent 350 hours in the book of First Peter. Um, and it's all like coming to a head now. Like, and I'm like, no, I don't want to leave, Peter. You know, uh, there's so much here. I want to keep talking about suffering, you know, for for longer. <laughs> um, um, but it, it, but I'm really excited uh, about today's message and to close this up for uh, for you. There's been some difficult passages in this in this letter, right? Uh, but I, but I was so happy this week. Uh, Peter did us a favor. He did me a, a favor uh, on how he decided to end his his letter. Um, he made my job, or I think any preacher's job, um, easier uh, because he actually gives us a, a summary statement of what he's seeking to accomplish um, at the end of his letter. Notice there in verse 12, we'll put this on the screen, in verse 12 he writes this, I have written briefly to you, some of you are like, it doesn't feel like it's been brief, it's been months, but he says i've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of god and he says stand firm in it so peter says stand firm in the grace of god i've reminded you of god's grace we've done, he's done that i've declared god's grace to you and now i want to leave you with this final charge stand firm In the grace of God. And if you really think about it, uh, isn't it interesting that Peter uh, gives us this command? That he even has to give us this command stand firm in God's grace. Because, I mean, honestly, who wouldn't want to do that? Uh, Grace is a beautiful and and a pleasant thing. Uh, Grace is something I think all of us would want to draw near to be in the presence of grace. And so, why this command to stand firm in it? And of course, uh, the reason is because of everything we've been talking about through the duration of this sermon series. Peter is writing to churches that are suffering, these people who are suffering as they follow Jesus. And so questions are arising amongst the community, like, they're thinking, "Hey, we're we're being faithful, we're committed. Right? Our lives have been transformed, changed because of Jesus." But at the same time, there's so much pain. There's so many trials. There's so much difficulty, and so the questions are rising: like, "What's going on? Have, have we been have we been abandoned? Right? Does God care about us? Does he does he really love us? And even..." are we experiencing, they're wondering, are we experiencing true salvation with all this suffering and hardship? And so Peter addresses this issue over and over again, that as a Christian, you should expect suffering and trials to come your way. That actually suffering is not in opposition to your salvation or contrary to the life you've been called into, But actually, suffering is an expected part of your salvation. It's part of God's redemptive plan for you. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easy, right? Just because it's expected doesn't mean it's not hard, okay? Which means we need these refreshers, right? We need these reminders. We need these encouragements. And honestly, that's one of the reasons that we need to prioritize gathering together as the body of Christ as well, right? We know this. Our lives are full, are full of so much noise. So many people, so many voices are speaking into our lives, telling us how we should live, who we should be, and what is true. And so we gather together to be reminded of what is really true, we gather together to, to regularly listen to the gospel, to refresh our minds, our hearts, and our souls of the good news of Jesus Christ so that, so that we can make it through this hard life. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. He is reminding a struggling people, followers of Jesus, to stand firm in God's grace He's saying, don't go to something else. Don't turn to someone else. His message is, stand firm. And so today, my message will be Peter's. I want to encourage you, as we close the letter of 1 Peter, to stand firm in the grace of God. To do that, I'm going to show you three ways. Three ways to stand firm in God's grace. So let's jump in. How do you stand firm? It's a question today. How do you stand firm in the grace of God? And we'll start here. Number one, humble yourself before God. How do you stand firm in the grace of God? Humble yourself before God. In verse 6 that was read to us um, during the the worship uh, time, Peter says this, uh, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In studying through this text, um, it seems pretty clear to me that the key phrase Uh, to understand is that phrase, mighty hand of God. If you're a person who doesn't mind writing in your Bible, um, you might want to underline that phrase, circle it, highlight it, whatever you uh, prefer to do, mighty hand of God. Because that phrase in particular would have actually triggered all sorts of thoughts and stories into the minds of these Jewish first century readers. Actually, this is only the only place in the entire New Testament where that phrase "mighty hand of God" is used. But we know it was very common uh, in the Old Testament, and in particular, it was almost almost always it's used in connection to the Exodus story. Now, um, I don't have enough time to go through the entire Exodus story. Okay, but bottom line. The exodus of Israel, the story of the exodus of Israel is a story of redemption from slavery to flourishing under the lordship of God. Okay, that's how I would sum it up. It's God's mighty endeavor of rescuing his people out of shackles, out of stagnancy, rescuing them through hardship into full flourishing into full salvation. And it's a great story, right? But we know it wasn't always perfect, right? It was messy. There were a lot of problems throughout the Exodus story. For, for example, again and again, in, in the Exodus, the people, the people themselves had issues, okay? I'll say it nicely. They had issues, whether it was Moses himself, when he's first called out to be God's mouthpiece for deliverance, or during the plagues, right, during the Passover, or, or when the, the people were actually delivered out of Egypt, and what happens? They're facing the Red Sea. The Red Sea's before them, and what do they do? They complain. Oh, it would have been, you know, Pharaoh's army's coming behind them. It would have been better for us just to be, you know, slaves in Egypt. It would have been better. Why don't you just leave us alone? We're going to drown, right? They're complaining. It didn't stop there. Right? They make it out of Egypt. Red Sea parts, you know the story, okay? They make it through. God comes through. He delivers them in spite of their, or despite of their, their complaining, Then they reach Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, right, to receive the law. And what do the people do? Well, I'll paraphrase it, right, summarize it. They say something like this, eh, maybe Moses and this God isn't what we need. Maybe it'd be better for us to fashion our own God. And so they make a golden calf to worship instead, right? This is the pattern over and over and over again with these people as hardships come their way. As difficulties and trials come their way, the response is not faithful trust. The response is grumbling. The response is rebellion. And yet, God is faithful and brings them to the promised land. And, And I share this because after the Exodus, after the Exodus story, right, we see this story, this narrative being echoed throughout the scriptures, right? I mean, before the cross, you have to think about this because we know about Jesus and we know what he did, but before the cross, before Jesus, this story, the Exodus story was the story, the story of redemption in the Bible. It's what they pointed to, to look at God's faithfulness. And so here in First Peter, we see Peter brings that up. He brings that to mind. To remind the readers and to remind us that we too have been delivered. We too have been rescued. We too have been saved by the mighty hand of God. That as God's people, he has rescued us and united us in Christ. And he's saying, I don't want you, Essentially saying, I don't want you to be surprised like Israel during the Exodus. You are on a program, say it that way, you're on a program of deliverance. A pathway to life eternal. You're on the path of salvation. But, like the Israelites, it's coming through trials. It's coming through suffering. Just like the Israelites Israelites in the Exodus. It's coming through the mighty hand of God. And so, the question for us is, how will we respond? The Israelites grumbled. They complained. And many of them rebelled. And Peter asks all of us, how about you? What will your response be? Will you respond in pride or humility? When you face trials, will you depend on yourself or will you depend on the Lord? Will you try to find your own deliverance or trust in his plan when trouble comes your way? Peter says, humble yourselves before God. Acknowledge God's mighty hand, his sovereignty and his power. And also, he says, with that, don't doubt God's concern for you. Right? You might be tempted to do that. Oh, I'm having such a hard time. Does God really care about me? Does he see me? Does he love me? He says, don't doubt God's concern for you. Right? That's a big part of this. Peter says, humble yourselves before the, Lord, before the Lord. And in that, he says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That word there, anxieties, It's it's an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word to divide, okay? It's an interesting word, meaning this. The point is this, that anxiety, anxieties, tend to divide our minds. Anxiety diverts our thoughts and our attention towards fear, away from truth many times and towards fear, and if you're a person here today, maybe listening online, and you are prone to anxiety, or if you're here today and you've ever worried one time in your life, who hasn't? I think we all have. right? You know what that's like to be anxious. Now, I think we can put a category of anxiety okay, to the side here. All right, so let me be really clear on this. I think there is some anxiety that that legitimately requires clinical help, right? I'm not sure Peter's talking about that specifically here. But in general, worry, worry is actually a form of pride. Maybe you've never heard it it said that way. But worry is actually a form of pride. Because when we are filled with anxiety, we are convinced that we must solve all of the problems in our life. And here's the key in our own strength. We convince ourselves of that. In other words, when we are captured by worry, when our minds and our hearts are captured by worry, the God we are trusting is ourselves. But when we throw our worries, our cares, our anxieties upon the Lord, on God, it's showing that we trust his mighty hand. In acknowledging that he is Lord over all of life, I was reading a few commentaries about this section in particular, and um, I read something I think it makes a lot of sense. It's an illustration that I want to read to you. It says this Suppose you were on a ship which encountered a fierce storm at sea. You don't know anything about handling a ship in such rough waters, but the captain, is a seasoned veteran who has brought his ship safely through many such storms. Wouldn't it be the height of arrogance for you to go up on the bridge and to tell him how to run the ship, or even worse, to take the wheel from him? If you were anxious in the storm, your fears would subside if you stopped, paused, and thought about the captain's competency. If you had a chance to talk to him, if you stopped to talk to him and he assured you that he had been through many such storms, you could relax and trust that he will get you through this one as well. You still may be in for a rough ride, but you can go through it without anxiety because you humbled yourself by not taking control and exalted the captain by trusting in him. As a follower of Jesus, we know this. We've been talking about this for months. Storms will come, trials will come. It's not if, it's when. So Peter says, in the midst of that, be humble. Accept and trust the mighty hand of God. Accept the truth that he loves you and cares for you so much that he will deliver you through. He's always done that for his people. He always will. Number two, how do you stand firm in the grace of God? Resist the enemy. Okay, resist the enemy, Peter tells us. This is verses eight and nine. Read along with me here. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we, we see here, Peter gives two commands to his readers. The first one, he says, be sober-minded. And then he says, be watchful. And both of these actually deal with uh, the state of our minds. Right? He's staying on the mind here. Being sober-minded uh, is a mindset. It's a mindset. And I'll say it this way. Um, biblically, we could think of it, it's the, actually the literal opposite of drunkenness, Okay, being sober-minded, meaning it's having a mindset that has clarity. It's having a mindset that is, um, that is under self-control. Okay, and, and I believe Peter commands us to this here because he knows, and he's experienced trials himself, of many kinds. But he knows that as trials come into our life, we can be totally overwhelmed. Right? Things can get really foggy when we're struggling, when hardship and heartache and suffering is going on. And we can easily forget reality and what is true. And then alongside of that, he calls us to be watchful here as well. And to put it simply, um, you gotta have to do a whole word study on this, but the, the implication here to be watchful—he means to know, to understand that your life passes by quickly. That life is like a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. It's knowing that we are living right now in between the appearances of Christ. We're in the in between. We're in between His first coming and waiting for the second coming. And it's being mindful that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. That's what it means to be watchful here. And why the reason for, for these two specific commands? Well, Peter tells us here, he says, because there is a lion on the prowl. He says, the devil is at hand, and he is looking for someone. He's searching for people To destroy. It means the devil is looking to. We have an enemy that is looking to consume you. We have an enemy that's looking to eliminate your fruitful life. And to do what? To draw you back into the world, away from God's people, and away from Christ. I think it's really interesting that Peter chooses the imagery of a roaring lion here. Um, I'd never really thought about that before. I just thought, well, he just, you know, picked the king of the jungle, and that makes sense, sort of. Um, But, of course, when you're studying God's word deeply, you get to do some of this stuff. And um, I, I came across something just really fascinating, that there's a reason, a good reason, even at that time, that he would have chose this illustration, This is actually deeply connected to shepherd sheep culture, which we talked about just last week. When we think of lions, we don't think of shepherds, but it's just out of our, we think of like wolves today, right? But actually, if you study even the life of like King David, he was fighting like, you know, lions and bears, right? Like all this stuff who are attacking attacking his sheep. So this is uh, attached to shepherd sheep culture. And what, what they say, if you read sort of uh, how things would go about in this time, what they say would happen is the, these, these lions would, would approach a flock of sheep, okay? And typically we know that flocks would all be together, right? These sheep are kind of in these herds, right? All together. And the lions would sort of, they're, they're strategic, they're smart, right? And so what they would do is, they would actually roar at the sheep to strike fear in them, which would then cause the sheep to run and to scatter, to flee. And in doing that, in being scattered, the sheep would lose protection of the shepherd. Right? And so the lion didn't want to approach the shepherd, you know, like David. I mean, he was like, you know, killing those things. But if he if they could get them to scatter, the shepherd would have to choose which way to go and then they could isolate a sheep and kill it. That's what we see here. The enemy wants to scatter you, to get you out from underneath the protection of the shepherd and the flock, to put you in danger. That's why Peter uses the language here, resist, stand firm. He's saying, hold your ground. Stay rooted. Don't scatter. That command there, resist. It's directed uh, towards our behavior. It means be firm in your faith. So, So yes, suffering is going on. You will face trials of many kinds. There is a lion. Understand, there's a lion that is prowling around, but resist him. Defy him. Know that your enemy wants you to believe wants you to believe that God isn't strong enough to deliver you. He wants you, your enemy, wants you to believe that God doesn't love you, that he doesn't care for you. The enemy wants to isolate you, make you feel like you're alone in your pain, in your suffering. He wants to separate you from the flock, from the rest of the sheep, and place you back into the world. But Peter says he wants to do that, but don't flee. Stand firm. And how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, Peter tells us, stand firm knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's one of the primary ways to resist the enemy and to stand firm in your faith. Basically, he's saying here that we can gain strength. We can gain strength knowing that there are faithful followers all over the world who are struggling and striving down this path together. We can find strength in the unity of believers. You know, for me personally, one thing that has helped me so much, so much when it comes to perseverance in this walk with the Lord is to just read, just to read about faithful examples of people who, throughout church history. Uh, It's just so encouraging to read about people who have made it through this life, people who have walked faithfully to the end, people who in the midst of deep struggle crossed the finish line. I think of uh, people, maybe some of you have heard this name, but I think of people, so many we've, most of us have never even heard of, maybe a person you've never heard of, like John G. Patton from Scotland. Um, This man, he was a missionary in the South Pacific uh, to an island um, that was full of a group of cannibals. Cannibals, if you don't know, they're people who eat people, okay? That's their diet. He wanted to be a missionary to those people, felt called to those people. He traveled there with his wife, the two of them. They left everything behind. Shortly after arriving to the island, um, his wife was pregnant, by the way, when they decided to make the journey, okay? Okay? A lot of sacrifice there. His wife uh, has the baby, uh, but just days after uh, giving birth, both the, her, the wife, and the baby uh, get a disease and die. The, the baby was like 35 days old. The mother dies as well. So what does John uh, G. Patton have to do? Well, he intentionally, he buries them on the beach. He can't go into the main village. Um, why? He buries them on the beach because night after night, He had to sleep on the grave of his wife and his child because he knew that the cannibal people would come, dig them up, and eat them. Okay? He was constantly, if you read his biography, threatened, um, almost killed several times, like uh, miraculous, like that he got away over and over and over again. But every time they would come to try to kill him, (laughs) he chose to stay he stayed there for decades, evangelizing and leading this group of people uh, to Christ, convincing others to come and join him in this work of the ministry. He gave his life for the gospel and for these people. Incredible faith through deep trials. And again, examples like this show me, show me I'm not alone in facing hardships and heartache. I'm not alone We just prayed earlier today for people in Nepal. You're not alone. There are people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, people you know even, some of you know the Williams personally, who are in a deep season of trial and pain, suffering. We're in this together. It shows me as well that Jesus has maintained, he has kept a people for himself. He has kept his church for generations. Generation after generation after generation, he has been faithful to help us to make it to the end. And so we can still expect that from him now, even today. He will be faithful to bring us to the end. And then a final word I want to say about this, about resisting your enemy. Let's keep in mind, let's keep in mind as well that we're not engaging the enemy in our own strength. This isn't actually even about you. Notice here the command. It's really important to know what the command is. The command here is to resist him. The command is not vanquish him. It's not eliminate him. And there's a big difference there. See, our job is not to win victory over Satan. It's not your job. That's already been accomplished. Okay? Listen, this, this roaring lion that Peter refers to here, he's already been defanged. He will not and cannot be ultimately successful in your life, in the church, or in our world. For those there who are in Christ, we belong to him. And Jesus, again, he will see your salvation, see my salvation through till the very end. Our command is to resist. And that resistance is found within the already accomplished victory that Christ has won for us. He, Jesus, he is our champion. And we are under the umbrella of his hope. And then finally, number three, how do we stand firm in the grace of God? How do we do this? How do we stand firm in the grace of God? Uh, Number three, trust the character of God. Trust the character of God. Peter begins his letter by reminding us of God's character. He ends his letter by reminding us of God's character. It's fitting, I think. In verses 10 through 11, look at what Peter says. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, uh, this idea of, of trusting the Lord is really weaved throughout this entire section and really throughout the entire book of 1 Peter. Peter says, be firm in your faith. Be firm in your faith. Cast your anxieties on the Lord, right? And all of that implies trust, right? And now he says, essentially he says this, God hasn't forgotten you in your trial, He is the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Therefore, you can trust him through your trials because he is the sovereign Lord and has dominion forever and ever. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking about this, even in my own life. You know, it's sort of a shame, it's sort of a shame how we view trusting God now, uh, today, especially within Christian circles. Um, It's almost, trusting God is almost viewed as impractical today, isn't it? Like, what are you talking about? Think about this. If you have a major problem in your life, you're going through a really hard time, and you ask somebody, can you grab coffee with me? And you share your struggle, you're going through this hard time, and that person's listening well, and then you ask them in the end, what do you think I should do? And they look at you and say, well, trust the Lord what would be your reaction to that? You'd probably be like, I wasted my money on coffee, right? And that was worthless, right? Not helpful helpful at all, right? What do you mean just trust the Lord? What do you mean? But yet from cover to cover, the scriptures speak to us about the practical benefits of putting our trust in the living God as the primary way to deal with the problems that we face in our lives. That's the best advice, trust the Lord. That's the most gospel-centered advice, trust the Lord. And in Peter here, he tells us that and then gives us some ways or some truths to strengthen that faith, to strengthen that trust. First, you see there, he says, and after you have suffered a little while, a little while is the key there, a little while, I've said this a few times throughout this series, but this, again, it has everything to do with your perspective. Everything to do with your perspective. Peter wants us, he wants you to put your trials and hardships in their proper place, in their perspective. Your pain, your suffering, he says, is for a little while. So don't lose sight of that reality. It might last your entire life till the day you die, but that's a little while in comparison with eternity and everything he has in store for you. The world and everything in it, including your hardships today, are temporary, which means you should keep, you should be keeping God's greater story in mind. You should be doing that as a follower of Jesus. Don't lose sight of don't lose focus of the eternal glory that is yours now and the glory that you will you will for certain enjoy forever. You know I have a I have a I have a friend not here so I'm I can share this right? I have a friend and it was terrible terrible to watch movies with him. Terrible because he actually, this is it's just crazy for me even to say this. He actually liked to Google the end of movies before he watched them. Okay? He would do that. All right? And why? I would talk to him and we would argue about this. And why? And he, would, he told me, this literally, for, he said, well, when I do that, then I can, then I can actually relax and enjoy the movie." And I'm like, what's the point of watching the movie, right? It's, it's nonsense. But for him, this was his, you know, how he felt. He, for him, like the suspense, the anticipation, the unknown, like that feeling, like, like when a movie has you on the edge of your seat, like the entire time you don't know what is going to happen and you finish the movie and you're exhausted, you know? I love that. I love that. But for him, he's like, that's not fun. He's like, you're, you're miserable, or you're, you're frightened. You know, for some of you who like horror movies, I don't understand that at all. I get that. But you enjoy that, and you're like, I just love being afraid, you know, and I can't sleep for like a week. It's great. You know, it's like, that's not great. But I get the thriller part, right? I get that part. Like, the end of your seat, like, You know at the end of The Avengers, you know what's going to happen. We know, but I wouldn't Google the ending, right? I don't want to know how Thanos is going to die. Spoiler alert. Okay right? But his perspective was so different. For him, he he told me, if I know the ending, then I can just sit back with my soda, my popcorn, and I can just enjoy it. I can just enjoy the cinematography, the acting, everything. I can just enjoy it. And I was thinking about that. Um, That's sort of what Peter wants for you and I as well. He wants us to be aware of the end of the story. He wants us to be aware of how things are ending. He wants to remind us who is going to stand on the side of victory so that we can be confident, at ease, anxious for nothing in this life that we are living. He wants us to have trust, to have faith in the promises of God, to have that eternal perspective so that we can stand firm in the grace of God. So to trust the Lord through your suffering, keep your trials in perspective. But also, but also, he tells us here, I think, put God in perspective as well. And what do I mean by that? Well, we need to remember who he is. We need to remember his character. And Peter tells us here that, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the God of all grace. The God of all grace. Listen, he's not the God of a little bit of grace. He's not the the God of a lot of grace. He's the God of all grace. His grace is like the ocean. It's a limitless supply that keeps breaking over our lives time and time again. It will never run out. His grace will never run out for those who humble themselves before the Lord, who admit their total need for him. He is so gracious, in fact, that Peter tells us here that he actually chose to call you. He sent his son, God sent his son, Jesus, to die in your place while you were still his enemy. Far from him, he came to rescue you and to bring you into his eternal glory in Christ, into his presence forever. He is the God of all grace And he is also the God of strength, both now and forever. Peter tells us this in verse 11. He says, to him be the dominion, that's power, forever and ever. Which means he is mighty. He is mighty to save his people from every single trial that they'll face. But even more, he is mighty to save you from eternal destruction and separation from the living God. Nothing, nothing can separate us from his love and his care. So, you can trust him. And you should, you should trust him. Not just because he's a gracious God, not just because he's a mighty God, but also because, Peter tells us, he's a good God. Peter says, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The point here, he is deeply cares for you. God, even when you don't see it, can understand it. God is using your trials, even today. He's using your hardships. He's using your heartache to refine you To mend you. Peter uses that word restore. It's the word mend. It's the same as putting together. By the way, putting together a fishing net, which by the way is meaningful to him. He's a fisherman. He used that on purpose. He's mending you, strengthening you, and establishing you on what? A firm foundation. God is equipping you for his good purposes. That's a guarantee. There is no wondering then. No wondering, no... Will this happen? This will happen. God has bound his name here. In his word, God has bound his name and reputation to these promises. He will do this for you. So let's trust this mighty God and stand firm in his grace because of who our God is. Well, then Peter closes this letter. He says this in verses 12 through 14. He's already said amen, but now he sends a final greeting. He says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. These closing words, this final greeting, really emphasizes the point that I made earlier, that as followers of Jesus, we don't go through trials, hardship, and heartache alone. We will all face difficulties in this life as we follow Jesus. And sometimes, We'll face those difficulties together. For example, uh, that man there, Silvanus, mentioned there, that's Silas, okay? He's known as Silvanus here, but that's Silas, by the way. That name might sound familiar to you. We know that he was a co-worker, very close uh, with the Apostle Paul. And actually, you can read about the story, he was actually in jail with Paul in Philippi for some time. And you know what? Paul and Silas were doing together in prison, the scripture tells us? They were in prison singing hymns to the Lord. (laughs) That was their response to being in prison. So this man Silas, Silvanus, he knew persecution. He knew how to view trials. He knew how to stand firm. We see Peter also mention those in Babylon Which, by the way, is pretty cool detail here. This is likely a code word for the church in Rome. Secret. He didn't want to write to the church in Rome because there's such persecution under Nero that if the letter would have been stolen or captured, then the Roman Empire would have known there's a church in Rome. We have to go find it. So he writes to those in Babylon, to she who is at Babylon. That's the church in Rome most likely. These are people in Rome, by the way, who are suffering. We've talked about this a lot. Suffering deeply under Nero's persecution. And so here's this group, Peter says. They're standing strong in the midst of the epicenter of wickedness. And their message along with Peter to the church is, stand firm. We're standing firm. We're with you here in Rome. You stand firm as well. And then there's Mark, who Peter calls his son here. And that's spiritual sonship, by the way. Peter became like a father to Mark, spiritually. And and who is Mark? Let's not forget, this is the Mark who was once so afraid of persecution that he abandoned the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on the missionary journey. He just couldn't take it. He had to leave. But now, later, we see He grew in his faith, and here he is, ready now with Peter to endure hardship, trials, and suffering for the gospel. So again, these mentions here remind us that we are not meant to go through this life alone. And we don't have to. We are meant to endure together, to stand firm together, to support one another. As a family. That's part of the heartbeat of the church. It always has been. So in a world that is not our true home, this world is not our true home, Peter says. In a world that is not our true home, Peter wants you and I to stand firm in the grace of God, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance that we face. In a world that tears us down tries to tell us who we are and who we should be. Peter tells us we are born again, set apart to be holy. We are living stones, firmly secure on the rock, Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And in a world that is, where there's so much chaos, so much confusion, so much reason for anxiety, Peter tells us may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Stand firm, church, because Jesus has died in your place. He has resurrected from the grave. He has secured, snatched salvation for you out of the enemy's hands, meaning he is the mighty God, the God of all grace, and the shepherd of our souls. Church family, because of who our God is and who he has called us to be, Let us be faithful ambassadors of the gospel to a broken, dark world around us. And let us be great glorifiers of our Lord Jesus Christ. We might suffer. We might face trials, troubles, heartache, and difficulty in this life. But Peter tells us, blessed be the God and Father. Bless his name. in the last time. In this you rejoice. That's the letter of First Peter. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together.